Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethan, Tennessee. And I remember clearly my eighth grade science class. We were studying cosmology. We had a test. One of the questions was to offer our best theory for the emergence of the universe. I have no idea what I wrote or remember my grade. I do remember the teacher talking about the test. He said that a couple of students had answered that question by saying, God made it. And then he said he gave that answer full credit. I thought, what? Is this a science class? God made it is no answer. It simply evades the question. God is no excuse not to do your homework. Do we need supernatural speculation, whether it be God or a cadre of blue fairies sprinkling magic dust, to explain the origin of the universe? To address that question and many more, welcome to Religion for Life. My guest is Dr. Lawrence M. Krauss. He is a theoretical physicist, foundation professor of the School of Earth and Space Exploration, and director of the Origins Project at Arizona State University. His primary contribution is to cosmology, as he was one of the first physicists to suggest that most of the mass and energy of the universe resides in empty space, an idea now widely known as dark energy. Dr. Krauss is the only physicist to have received awards from all three major U.S. physics societies, the American Physical Society, the American Association of Physics Teachers, and the American Institute of Physics. In 2012, he was awarded the National Science Board's Public Service Medal for his contributions to public education in science and engineering in the United States. He's the author of several best-selling books, including The Physics of Star Trek, Fear of Physics, and Quantum Man, Richard Feynman's Life in Science. He's with me via Skype to discuss his latest book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. Welcome, Dr. Krauss, to Religion for Life. It's great to be here, sort of virtually. (laughs) <laughs> right. Hey, tell us uh, about the reason for this book. Why did you write it? Who's your audience? And, and what's the message you want to communicate? Oh, that's a good question, I guess. I, well, I, I wrote it for, obviously, for everyone. I think what I wanted to do was communicate the revolutionary discoveries over the last 30 years that have completely changed our picture of the universe, that describe some of the greatest intellectual leaps humans have ever made and some of the most amazing and astounding discoveries. I, uh, I had given a lecture on on the subject, which uh, became kind of a YouTube hit, and I guess now about one and a half million people have watched it. And I realized that there was great interest in the subject. And 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 after I gave the lecture, I I'd been often a, a, I don't know whether accosted is the right word, but people have confronted me with this question: Why is there something rather than nothing? As a religious and philosophical question, and I guess I wanted to be able to put uh, science in this context and show how. That very question, which has been around as long as people have probably been questioning, has completely changed because of of, of the results of science, that it's not the same question as it was before. Both the ideas of something and nothing have changed completely. Yeah, I want to talk about that, about nothing, in just a, a little bit. But uh, first I want to just ask you, in general, you said the cosmology has changed over uh, the last 30 years, let alone 100 years. Uh, what was the consensus regarding the universe now, or what is it now, as opposed to, say, when uh, Einstein was generating his theories? How old is it? How big is it? And where is it going? 
you know, that's a great question because it's it's all it's almost hard to fathom how much things have changed in, in essentially in a single human lifetime. When Einstein developed his general theory of relativity, and even for a decade afterwards, up till 1925, the picture of the universe that scientists had was that we lived in a eternal static universe that was the same and would always be the same that consisted of one galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy. We now understand, 85 or 87 years later, that we, our galaxy is just one of over 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and that the universe isn't static. It's actually expanding and had a beginning 13.7 billion years ago. And so 100 years ago, we knew of one out of 100 billion galaxies. We are just like the early map makers. It's not too surprising we're constantly surprised. And uh, and you write in your book about a flat, a closed, and an open universe. What are those, and, and what are we in? Okay, well, yeah. now that's, a, again, a very good question. And, and Because when Einstein developed general relativity, what he showed, which was remarkable, is that gravity is really a theory of space and time. And in fact, matter and energy can affect the properties of both space and time. And matter and energy can literally curve space. Around the sun, space curves, and light rays travel in curved lines around the sun. And then when you, when you consider that, the question you can therefore ask is, is our universe as a whole curved? Now, it's hard to picture that because I'm not talking about curved like a piece of paper or uh, any two-dimensional surface. I'm talking about a curved three-dimensional universe, which is, of course, very difficult for us to picture because we're three-dimensional beings and we therefore uh, uh, can't e e visualize curved three-dimensional surfaces, but we can write them down mathematically, and that's what's possible because of general relativity. Space in a three-dimensional sense can be curved, and they're one of three possible geometries, so-called open, closed, or flat. Uh, now, again, one can't picture them easily. A in a closed universe, if I looked far enough in one direction, I'd see the back of my head because the universe would literally close in on itself. Like flat universe isn't flat like a pancake. It's more just the universe you always thought you lived in, where where the perpendicular x, y, and z axes always remain the same, and light rays travel in straight lines. It's always it's the sensible universe that you thought you lived in. In a curved universe, the perpendicular x, y, z axes can be pointing in different directions in different places because space curves. So a flat universe is, is, as I say, the Euclidean sensible universe that, that probably everyone always thought they lived in. And what is amazing is that we have discovered, again, after about 80 years of trying to probe for this, that indeed we live in a flat universe, a universe where light rays travel in straight lines on average across the universe. And that, uh, that's one of the great discoveries of the last century. And, and physicists like me, theorists like me, always thought we lived in a flat universe, not just because we like to be able to picture it, but because it turns out a flat universe is in some sense the only mathematically beautiful universe, and in particular, the total gravitational energy of any object in a flat universe is zero. Now, if you were going to create a universe from nothing, what would you make the total energy of every object? And so the, the, a flat universe is particularly appealing because in some sense it, uh, it, it can, is the one that we would expect or at least uh, ultimately expect to see resulting out of, a, out of nothing. And, and, uh, and, and I think that's one of the... the, the the most remarkable aspects, all the features of our universe are consistent with a universe that we would have expected or the, the properties of a universe that we would expect it to have if it arose spontaneously from nothing, 
without any supernatural shenanigans. My guest is Dr. Lawrence M. Krauss, and he is the author of A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And you did a lot of work on uh, this concept of dark energy. What, what Can you explain that for us sure, non-specialists? Yeah. Well, I try. It's, it, it, it's one of the strangest concepts in science. It's really amazing. We have discovered that if you take empty space, and by empty space I mean you take some region of space, you get rid of all the particles, all the radiation, absolutely everything, and that empty space still weighs something. Hmm. And it is ridiculous. It is, we have not, do not have the slightest reason why, in some sense, why that empty space weighs what it does. But the stranger thing is, it turns out Einstein tells us, with the general theory of relativity, that if you put energy in empty space, it behaves very differently than any other kind of energy. Namely, all the other kinds of mass and energy in the universe are gravitationally attractive. Your listeners probably learned in high school that basically gravity sucks. It always pulls. Mm -hmm. It's always attractive. But if you put energy in empty space, it's gravitationally repulsive. And it's like a form of anti-gravity. And so if the dominant energy of the universe resides in empty space, the expansion of the universe should not be slowing down as any sensible universe would in a universe where all everything was attracting everything else. If I throw a coin up in the air, it, 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 it starts out faster and gets slower and slower and slower due to the gravitational attraction of the Earth. You would have thought as the universe was expanding, that expansion would slow down, and that's what everyone expected. But what we've discovered is the expansion of the universe is actually speeding up, and it's speeding up because the dominant energy of the universe, 70% of the total energy of the universe, appears to reside in empty space. And you wrote in your book that a trillion years from now, imagine that number, a trillion years, but astronomers, if they happen to exist at all, will ironically see the universe as scientists saw it 100 years ago because it's the rest of the galaxies will expand out of our range. Is that right? How does in fact, that work? Yeah, in the, in a two trillion years or so, or a trillion years or so, every galaxy we can now see, all 100 billion of them, will be moving away from us faster than the speed of light and will have disappeared. And so observers, not us, because we won't be around, but observers who evolve, and I'm still allowed to say that word in the United States, observers who evolve on a planet around another star and what will be something like our Milky Way, and there will still be stars around in two trillion years. Uh, some observers who evolve around such a planet will build telescopes and 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 do and learn science and discover electricity, magnetism, and quantum mechanics and all the rest. They'll turn their telescopes out to the universe, and they won't see anything outside of our galaxy. And indeed, the picture they'll have is very similar to the false picture we had 100 years ago. It's kind of poetic. It is kind of poetic. And you talk about, back to the, the dark energy, uh, um, you wrote in your book that if there were 50 times, which really isn't much on the scale of magnitude, more dark energy than there is, the universe wouldn't exist as it is. Uh, galaxies wouldn't have formed. So, so a theologian might say, uh, see, the universe was designed just right for us. Case closed. God created it. Read your Bible, Dr. Krauss. Uh, what do you say to that particular assertion and those kinds of assertions in general? I mean, it's the same, but that assertion, which of course was false, was, you know, a bee can see the colors of, of flowers so it can get the nectar to, to survive. And you say, look, the bee was designed. It's clearly, you know, God designed it directly so it could survive. And, and that was the picture before Darwin, but we understand that, in fact, much more simply, that, in fact, the bee, if the bee couldn't see the colors of the flowers, it wouldn't survive. It's natural selection. That, in fact, 
And, and so in some sense, this is kind of a cosmic natural selection. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't expect to find ourselves living in a universe in which we couldn't live. In fact, we'd be quite surprised. Right. <laughs> and, and so in some sense, it, the possibility, one possibility is that, that uh, there are many different universes with many different laws of physics and, um, and, and certainly, say, many different energies of empty space and only in those universes in which the energy of empty space is small enough for galaxies to form will galaxies form and then stars and then planets and then people and aliens. And so, so uh, the universe is the way it is because we're here to measure it. It's, it sounds like it was designed for us, but rather it's kind of a cosmic natural selection. Uh, and, and, and it's quite plausible, it turns out, given many of our theories of, of, of elementary particle physics, that that uh, there can be indeed many different universes. So that, uh, that idea that he called the anthropic principle is certainly plausible. It doesn't have to be true. It could be that indeed there's only one set of laws of physics and ultimately we'll understand why the energy of empty space is what it is. And it happens to be fortunate enough for us to be around to ask the question. Um, but I should also add that it's, while, it, while if it were much greater, galaxies wouldn't exist, um, we, of course, couldn't say that no life would, ex that we, that would exist if, if galaxies didn't exist, so, because we don't know all the different kinds of life that might exist. But we can also say something else. That it, it seems to be exquisitely fine-tuned in some sense so we can be here, but it could have been better. If the energy of empty space were zero instead of what it is, then, in fact, not only would we be, a, a, be around, but, in fact, as far as the long-term future of life is concerned, the universe will be a much more hospitable place. So it's not as if it has the value it has and any other value would be worse. There actually could be values, at least in terms of the long-term future of life, that could be better. My guest, Dr. Lawrence M. Krauss, he's the author of A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing, a professor at Arizona State University and a director of The Origins Project, uh, author of a number of other books, including The Fifth Essence, The Fear of Physics, uh, Physics of Star Trek, uh, Hiding in the Mirror, and he's talking to us about about his latest book, A Universe from Nothing: Why There Is Something uh, Rather Than Nothing. And you kind of uh, you talked about the topic of a multiverse. Is do you think physics and science would ever be able to answer that question? Well, it's a, that's a very good question because it sounds kind of like metaphysics. If there are other universes that are distinct from our own that we can't see directly, you know, it sound, almost sounds like counting angels on the head of a pin or something. Uh, the point is that we there if there are other universes that are so-called causally disconnected from us, that are separated from us and we can't see directly, we still may get indirect evidence for their existence. For example, we, may, we don't have right now a fundamental theory that describes all of fundamental physics, including gravity, as a quantum theory. But let's say we did develop such a theory and we could predict um, why the proton is 2,000 times heavier than the electron, why there are three generations of elementary particles, etc. We could make many, many predictions which we could test in the laboratory. But it could be that in this theory, as we, as we ask what would have happened to the early universe, it, it, it could be that this theory would predict the generation of many different universes. Now, it therefore, it could make 100 predictions. We could test 99 of them. And, and one of them we couldn't test. But, but if it really described everything else we see, We'd say, well, look, this other plausible prediction is probably true. It's just like for many years we, we accepted the existence of atoms before we could see them with electron microscopes because everything else pointed to their existence. 
And so it could be that, we, that everything else could point so clearly to the existence of other possible universes that we're willing to accept their existence even if we can't see them directly. That's about as close as we can get, and I think for many people that would turn it from metaphysics into physics. We'll talk about um, origins then of, of our universe and, and the Big Bang Theory and this concept called inflation in which it isn't so much that, um, well, tell me about that. How does that work? <laughs> well, it turns out, uh, I mean, one of the th remarkable things that can happen if you have a theory of quantum gravity, which we don't have, but we know a lot of what its properties must be, is that space becomes a dynamical variable. And the first thing that can happen is, a, in fact, space can pop into existence from nothing by simply quantum mechanical processes, space and time. And so you could imagine a whole universe that suddenly pops into existence, a very small, microscopically small universe, but a universe nevertheless. And that can happen all the time due to the laws of, of quantum gravity, we think. Now, most of those universes will collapse in a very short time. But it turns out, and indeed, our universe seems to have this property, that energy can get, that, that you know, if you, if you sort of cool water down and you stir it while you're cooling it down, you can cool it down below 32 degrees and it'll still be liquid. But the minute you stop stirring it, it will suddenly freeze into ice. And um, in the process, it'll actually release some heat. Now, what can happen in our universe is as our universe cools from its early hot, dense stage, very, very hot and very dense, it can get stuck in a, what's called a metastable state, just like water is before it's, it, it freezes. And when that happens, energy gets trapped in empty space, huge amounts of energy. And when that happens, of course, that energy is gravitationally repulsive, just like the small amount of energy density in the universe today. And that huge energy density causes that very small universe to expand very rapidly, so-called inflate. And our theories of elementary particle physics suggest that just such a thing could happen in our very early universe, causing it to expand by a huge amount, 10 to the 90th in volume, in a very short time, in a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second, making a microscopically small universe large enough to survive until the present time. And in fact, it's only by this process of inflation that, that such a universe might survive long enough for life to exist, for example. And when it inflates so, so fast, like a balloon that you blow up, the curvature of the universe gets smaller and smaller and smaller. As, a, as you make a balloon larger and larger and larger, it, it, it looks flatter. That will result in the long run in a universe that looks exactly flat. And that seems to be just like the universe we see. And moreover, during that period of inflation, quantum mechanics will generate small lumps and, and those will have exactly the properties of what we see in the structure of the universe today in the galaxies and clusters of galaxies. So all of the properties of this early remarkable period of inflation seem to be manifest in the universe we live in today. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and my guest is physicist Lawrence M. Krauss with a fascinating book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And that subtitle, Why There's Something Rather Than Nothing, uh, you wrote in your book um, uh, that the real question is not so much why, but how. H how is there, from a physics perspective, something from nothing? And, and what is nothing? Well, you know, that, uh, of course, I, you know, it's an interesting question, and that's why I've written a whole book about it, but, but I'll try and, and explain a little bit of it now. I, I think the how question is very important. Why questions have no meaning in science? Because they presume purpose. And, um, you know, it, it, the question of why are there 
as, as Kepler used to ask, why are there six planets? Uh, the, uh, people used to think that was significant, that somehow it gave meaning, I insight into the mind of God. Well, of course, we know there aren't six planets. There are nine planets. And by the way, there are nine planets. Pluto will always be a planet for me. But we know <laughs> there's nothing special about nine planets, that there are many other solar systems that have different numbers of planets. And the question is not why are there nine planets, but how are there nine planets? How did our solar system arise? Similarly, with our universe, the question is not why is there something rather than nothing, but how could possibly 100 billion galaxies arise out of, out of no matter? And in fact, it turns out that empty space is actually not so empty, that empty space is a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence in a time scale so short that we can't even see them. And that those kind of quantum processes could ultimately, if you add gravity in the mix, create real particles. And in fact, nothing in the sense of empty space is unstable. It will eventually, if you wait long enough, you're more or less guaranteed that it will fill up with stuff. And so that kind of nothing, empty space, is unstable. And, and the, the real surprise would not be that there's something, but rather that there's nothing. If you wait long enough, you're guaranteed to have something. But also, as I said, you might say, well, empty space isn't nothing. But as I just pointed out, when you make, if, if you make gravity a quantum mechanical theory, then even space itself becomes a quantum mechanical variable, and spaces can pop in and out of existence, as can time. And whole universes can pop in and out of existence. And so you can actually have no space, no time, no matter, and all of that can pop into existence spontaneously with, no, with, with the laws of physics, once again, without any supernatural shenanigans. You can create a universe with zero total energy, and it can nevertheless, by the laws of quantum mechanics, end up looking like our universe with 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars, and around one of those stars in our Milky Way, at least, we exist. Now, whether life exists elsewhere in the universe is still an open, interesting question. You mentioned right at the beginning of the interview that uh, when you talked about your ideas on YouTube, you were accosted by people who, who uh, objected. They want God in there somewhere. Um, Richard Dawkins, who wrote the afterword to your book, along with Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens, received the moniker of kind of bad boy atheist. Um, and the reason is because he doesn't give theologians a pass. And I think that's admirable, very much so. And, and you yourself debate theologians. Uh, it seems to me that doing so is kind of like to trying to uh, box a phantom. Uh, but um, you have a reason for doing this, don't you? In your experience, religion and theology inhibits free inquiry. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think the point is when you, what religion does in some sense is it presumes the answers before you even ask the question. It, it Basically, it says, I want the universe to be this way, so it must be this way. And the point is, the universe is the way it is, whether we like it or not. And our job is not to say, you know, we wish there were a creator, we feel better. The, uh, the bottom line is to say, how do, what is the universe like? How does it behave? And can we try and understand it? And keep and a, a truly open mind, in fact, forces your beliefs to conform to the evidence of reality rather than the other way around. And, uh, and therefore, in fact, I, I, I do agree that, in fact, generally religion all of which, by the way, has organized religion, has been based on you know, ideas written down by Bronze Age peasants who didn't even know the Earth orbited the sun. The organized religions, the doctrines of those, disagree with the evidence of reality, and they also disagree with each other. And those simple fairy tales are so much less interesting than the actual story we've come up with that I find it tragic that many people would rather close their minds and say, no, I'd rather not learn how the universe actually behaves. I'd rather, I'd rather believe the stories in, in these ancient books. And that's kind of tragic, I think, because 
The actual story is so fascinating, and in my opinion, so much more, if you, even if you want to use the word spiritual, spiritually uplifting, that I, hope, that I hope more people could share it. And that's the reason why I wrote this book. I want people to be fascinated, excited, and inspired by the universe as it actually is, instead of the universe as people would like to invent it to be. Well, how do you feel about the state of science and religion in the United States today? Well, I think that fortunately, there are many people who would rather their children not learn about the real universe, not learn how evolution is the basis of modern biology, not learn about the Big Bang because they feel it threatens their faith. And, and it's almost like the Taliban. They'd rather their children be ignorant rather than risk the possibility that their faith could be diminished. And I, I think that's really unfortunate because obviously our future as a healthy technological society, one that's economically viable, depends on a trained workforce of people who have the skills to be able to meet the challenges of the 21st century. And we as a global society have incredible challenges from global warming and climate change to, to the need to produce new sources of sustainable energy. We can't get there if we bury our heads in the sand. So uh, I, I, I think it's really unfortunate that at least for some people, their faith closes their minds and in fact gets in the way of educating their children. Dr. Lawrence Krauss, author of A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing, my guest on Religion for Life. Dr. Krauss, do you have a, a final word for us? Well, I just hope that, uh, that, uh, peop that people will read the book and, and enjoy it because it is a fascinating story. It's a, it's a wonderful roller coaster ride we've been on. And for me, as I say, my purpose so much isn't to argue against God, it's just to demonstrate to people how remarkable our universe really is. And I think that is worth sharing, the fact that we, in this remote planet in the middle of nowhere with our brains, have been able to explore the universe back to its earliest moments and explore it out to the distances so far we'll never be able to travel there in spacecraft. It's such a wonderful journey that more people should share it. Very good. I agree. And I hope people will pick up Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing. My guest on Religion for Life, Dr. Krauss, thank you for being with me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. More information about this program, including links to podcasts, information about upcoming shows, and more can be found at religionforlife.com. Also follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.